hate to. Yeah. Okay, so we're about, what, 50 minutes in, and then I found out that for whatever reason, my card stopped recording. Because fuck our lives. And we couldn't just, I couldn't just stop it there and restart it because while we were 52 minutes in, my card was only 15 minutes in. So basically, we're probably never using that mic again. Because I can't see Remember during the Titanic episode, all those metaphors we kept making? Yeah. 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 Those analogies were... I'm going to make a Jonah and the Whale reference because I'm throwing that thing to the fish. Anyway. (laughs) So... It's going to be like the Titanic. It's going to be at the bottom of the fucking episode. Yeah. And the other thing is like... Not literally. We don't believe in Pluto. Lindsay's exhausted and I just feel terrible that we have to do this again because it was going so... Well, like I'm not even kidding. We were doing such a good job, Classic and here we Panasaurus. and then here we are. I know it wouldn't be a Panasaurus episode if something didn't go wrong. But I anyway, mean, we went a while without things going horribly wrong, so I feel like we were about <laughs> to get kicked in the ass eventually. And today was that day. So. Be a little easier to edit, that's for sure. But anyway, so anyway, we'll just go back. guess what? We're using one mic for the probably the rest of this season. Yeah. Because I'm not doing that again. Nope, and we're poor, so... We're very poor, so if you want to help us out and get a new mic so that this doesn't happen again... And this sounds better. Yeah, uh, please uh, please uh, sub- subscribe to us on Patreon. Things, money, give us it. Pretty much, so... I'm so sorry, Lindsay. Oh, it's okay. We're going to make it. We're fine. Yep, so... <laughs> literally, back from the beginning... We are talking about the history of LGBT plus rights in Canada. And the reason why we chose Canada is because A, we're Canadian. And B, LGBT rights is... Well, you explained you explain this really well when you're oh, going... Oh, boy. Yeah, I think that LGBT rights, mostly when we talk about them, I think people mostly think about American history, specifically. And our history is a lot different. I mean, there's lots of parallels, for sure. Especially once you get to the 70s and 80s and 90s, etc. It's a little more parallel, but it wasn't (laughs) for a long time. I mean, I learned a lot personally with this episode, so uh, I figured that a lot of people probably would too. We we both learned quite a bit. I don't know if that's as good as the first time I said it. No, it was good. It was good. (laughs) It's pretty much exactly the same. Well, there we go. I'm not thinking of that So, yeah, I mean, on top of us being Canadian, there just isn't a lot of discussion about LGBT rights in Canada. Yeah. Which I think is important because it's Pride Month and I mean, it matters all year round, but we just figured it was topical. Absolutely. So. I mean, our Pride, Chestermere Pride is at the end of the month. Chestermere has one? Yep. We huh. do now. RG huh. Pride is tomorrow as of recording this and we're going to be there. June 22nd. Woo! So we're, we'll have already been there. So Strathmore basically, we're going to have like, a gay rodeo. I know they used to, yeah. It was great. She, my stepmom used to. Uh, volunteer for them. I but did too. It was a great time. Is that where they had the running of the bulls? Anyway. That's an heritage Jason. Okay. Um, <laughs> they did have other fun events. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's okay. Anyway. So, anyway, yeah. So, we're going to jump right into this because we went pretty. I'm actually. It's kind of good that we have to start over again because we. I, 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 of course, it's me. I went a little overboard in the discussion at the beginning, but here we are. So. <laughs> Hopefully this sounds good, because if something else goes wrong, I swear to God, I'm just scrapping the next two episodes and be like, fuck it. We're, we're taking a break. We're taking a break and doing the moon landing. <laughs> mid-season, <laughs> mid-season, mid-season break. Mid-season break. 
a bit early too. But anyway, so before Confederation in Canada, there was known acceptance of homosexual relationships and what is known as two-spirited people amongst the First Nations community, whereas discrimination was rare and only increased after colonization. Of course. Colonialism. Yeah. Bitch. So, prior to Confederation, Canada was subject to both French and British legal codes. The punishment for homosexual behavior was death, albeit it was seldom enforced. The first known trial for the crime of homosexuality in New France occurred in September 1648. A military drummer was sentenced by the Sulpician, or Sulpician priests to the gallows for sodomy in Ville-Marie, now Montreal. However, local Jesuits from Quebec City intervened on the drummer's behalf and were able to have his sentence commuted under the condition the drummer become New France's first permanent executioner. Which he accepted, he, of course, because as Lindsay said when we previously recorded this, it's better than death. Yeah, I assume. <laughs> I, I don't know if being an not, exe- I don't know the mental toll of being an executioner, but it yeah. seems like it's better than yeah, dying. The, the, the joke was, you don't get to die, you just get to kill more people. Y- yep. It is not known who the drummer was involved with, although it is suspected to have been a First Nations man who could not be tried under French religious law. Because religious law was a thing in New France back then. And France. Arguably still Quebec, to some extent. Religi- yeah. Religious symbols laws. They're weird. Yeah, but that's... that. Anyway, <laughs> that's <laughs> anyway. a whole different can <laughs> of worms. Whole... Yeah. <laughs> so missionaries stepped up their conversion process during the 18th century. Jesuit priest Joseph-Francois Lefoy who lived with the Iroquois for six years in Seoul saint louis now Hanwake Mohawk Territory, I apologize if I butchered that, uh, recorded the first known observance of LGBT practices among the First Nations. He wrote of cross-gender slash two-spirited behavior as, quote, if there were women with manly courage who prided themselves upon the profession of warrior, which seems to become men alone, there were also men cowardly enough to live as women. You know, I, I, I said that this sounds like a ha- backhanded insult. It's just a full it's hand a insult. Out. It's a straight it, Just insult. rereading it, yeah, it's totally a full hand insult. Even after the British took most of the territory in Canada, death remained the penalty for sodomy. There is no known surviving record of anyone convicted of sodomy getting executed in Canada for the crime, with the charges often commuted or pardoned by the colonial governors. The magistrate of Upper Canada, who now now Ontario, Alex Wood, and another politician, George Hirschmere, Markland, were caught in a scandal after it was alleged the two men were lovers. This came around the same time Wood was investigating a rape case, and during this case, the victim said she managed to scratch the genitals of her assailant, so Wood inspected the genitals of several suspects while it was recorded that he made no lewd practices or inappropriate behavior during these these examinations, things rumors still spread. As and they do. As they do. Neither man was charged, although they were forced to resign from their positions as a result of the scandal. In eighteen fifty nine, the Consolidated Statutes of Canada was repatriated to Canada. 
including its buggery law, saying, quote, every person guilty of the abominable, abominable crime of buggery committed either with mankind or with any animal shall suffer death as a felon. Ah, buggery. Not a term you hear a lot about. No. Like, you never... Is that even a... That's not even... It can't be in the legal code now. I would hope not. Desperately hope not. Yeah, I have no idea. There's My brother has... Uh, he has like a book with the legal codes in them. And we were like looking through some, some of them. special things in there. Yeah, there were some interesting ones. And, we're, and you got to wonder, like he was asking, he's like, well, he's like asking, he's asking himself, like, he's like, I wonder if anybody in the last like 10 years has been convicted or even charged with Even some longer in some cases. There's some yeah. laws in there that have existed for like the last 80 years and no one's done anything. Yeah. I mean, most of the laws in there are perfectly fine. Like yeah. they make sense. But then there's every so often you'll find... A odd one a in there. Clearly outdated one. Yeah, and this is like the legal code of Canada kind of thing. So, <laughs> did things get better after Confederation, Lindsay? Uh no, <laughs> not really. Um, I mean, to be fair, we're still in post-Confederation, so like, I guess yeah, <laughs> but for a while, no, no, until the 1940s. But in the meantime. Um, in 1918, Montreal writers Elsa Gidlow and Roswell George Mills launched Les Mouches Fantastiques, a mimeographed underground magazine, which is the first known LGBTQ publication in Canada and North America. The magazine arose out of a local writing circle established by poet Elsa Gidlow. Gidlow and Mills, who was a journalist, were the primary contributors. The publication's working title prior to the publication of the first issue was Coal from Hades, which I still don't understand, but... Cool. And its content included both poetry and nonfiction writing about gay and lesbian identity politics, as well as editorials opposing World War I, which was very contentious in Canada, and especially in Quebec, due to conscription, and at this point in the war, we'd sent a ton of people to die. It was not great. The magazine was widely distributed far beyond Montreal, within both gay and lesbian social networks, and the underground community of amateur journalists. The magazine received correspondence from as far away as Havana, Cuba, and an Episcopal priest from South Dakota left the priesthood and moved to Montreal to become Mills's partner after being exposed to the magazine. One of the cooler stories that I saw in my research. Fun little anecdote. Unsurprisingly, the magazine was heavily criticized by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, <laughs> in an essay that he wrote in 1918, but was posthumously published in his book, Miscellaneous Writings. Again, not surprising. Lovecraft, oh, buddy. Anyway. People who know me, I'm I'm re-explaining this, but people who know me, I love the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Not so much his essays, but his stories. But at the same time, I understand he was not a good man. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So five issues of the magazine were published before it was discontinued in 1920, so it was pretty short-lived. Mills and Gidlow moved to New York City from Montreal, so that's what killed that. A few copies are known to still exist. But one copy is in the archives of the University of South Florida. The University of Iowa Library has an original of all five issues. Again, surprised by Iowa and South Florida, but cool. <laughs> Good for you. And the Quebec Gay Archives have a reprint of the final issue. I'll see if I can find some images for Facebook. Anyway, an amendment was finally made. We skip ahead a lot of years now. An amendment was made to the Criminal Code in 1948. Again in 1961, which I'll talk about. And this amendment further criminalized homosexuality through the invented categories of criminal sexual psychopath and dangerous sexual offender. You th okay, 
Pause for a second. Do you think that's still a term used in the legal code? Criminal sexual psychopath? Yeah. I hope the fuck not. <laughs> At least in regards to gay well, people. Well, I mean, no, not in regards <laughs> to gay people, but in general. I general. don't know. Probably not. <laughs> I gotta look this because up. Because I, I don't... I'm gonna go with probably not. Okay. But maybe. I don't know. Look it up. Let me know. Fact I'll check. Let you know. Dangerous sexual offender. Pretty sure that still exists, though. Uh, again, <laughs> not in relation to gay people, but still exists. The latter, dangerous sexual offender, was defined as anyone who is likely to commit another sexual offense, thus criminalizing any gay person who is not celibate, which obviously is shitty and not fair. But there are still laws in Canada that punish gay men who are not celibate. See also, giving blood. In the 1950s and 60s, things started changing, especially in the 50s, and they really continued to change. So, debate about the criminalization of homosexuality escalated in the British and Canadian press. I'm going to talk about Britain here for a quick second, but like I said, Canadian policy, heavily influenced by British policy, this matters. So following World War II, there was an uptick in arrests and per- uptick in arrests and persecutions, or prosecutions, persecutions, both, I don't know, of homosexuals in the UK. And by 1954, over 1,000 men were in prison. This included notable people such as Alan Turing and Lord Montague of Beaulieu. So anyways, famous people got arrested and the government decided to care. So following these notable arrests, the Conservative government set up a departmental committee under Sir John Wolfenden to consider both homosexual offenses and prostitution. The committee consisted of 15 people, 3 women and 12 men, and was led by Wolfenden, who had previously been headmaster of Uppingham and Shrewsbury, and in 1950 became the vice-chancellor of the University of Reading. The committee first met on the September 15th, 1954, on 62 days. Uh, Wolfenden suggested that, for the sake of the ladies in the room, that they use the terms Huntley and Palmers after the biscuit manufacturers. <laughs> Huntley's for homosexuals and Palmers for prostitutes. <laughs> so classic. So many ways. Still funny. Evidence was heard from police and probation officers, psychiatrists, religious leaders, who, again, plot twist, at the time were at the <laughs> forefront of homosexual law reform. <laughs> Thanks for Yeah, you'll, leaders. uh... It'll be a bigger plot twist during the last little bits of discussions in this episode. A lot of plot twists in this story. Oh, yeah. Do continue. (laughs) Um, Anyway. And also gay men whose lives have been affected by the law were also obviously interviewed. I would hope. Turns out getting gay men to testify proved to be difficult, which, again, not surprising. But those who did, who had not already been arrested and sent to prison, had their identities protected. So Wolfenden referred to... Like, in, in all the reports, men who were kept anonymous were referred to as, like, the doctor or the the butcher, whoever, like, whatever. They're basically their occupation or... The some, baker, the, the baker, candlestick you know. maker. Yeah, yeah. Probably not candlestick maker. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Who knows, though? I could be wrong. Anyway, <laughs> the committee ultimately recommended that, quote, homosexual behavior between consenting adults in private should no longer be a criminal offense. All but one of the committee members, James Adair. Looking at you, James were in favor of this, and also were contrary to some, well, most common medical and psychiatric witnesses' evidence at the time, and they found that, quote, homosexuality cannot be legitimately be regarded as a disease because in many cases it is the only symptom and is compatible with full mental health in other respects. The report added that, quote, the law's function is to preserve public order and decency, to protect the citizen from what is offensive or injurious, and to provide sufficient safeguards against exploitation and the corruption of others. It is not, in our view, the function of the law to intervene in the private lives of citizens or to seek to enforce any particular pattern of behavior. Or, in the words of Pierre Trudeau, stay out of the bedrooms of the people. (laughs) (laughs) 
quoted Trudeau a lot more in the last two hours than I thought I ever yeah. would. The recommendations eventually led to the passage of the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967, a decade after the report was published in 1957, because government. And it would also later become known that Wolfenden's son was gay. So I guess he had a vested interest as well, but that's cool. So as in the UK, the stigma against the LGBTQ people had intensified after World War II here in Canada as well. Gay men were considered not only deviant, but also prone to communist subversion and at the risk of blackmail, because communists, obviously. <laughs> um, authorities had, become, had begun actively seeking out gay men in the military and public service. Those identified were typically dismissed or lost their security clearance. Police sought to entrap gay men in washrooms and parks where they were known to meet for sex. Like I said the first time we did this, I mean, I keep saying that as if they can hear it, but anyway. <laughs> the, for those of you who are not familiar with Canada's history during the Cold War, uh, we were equally as crazy as those in the United States and had our own witch hunts, much like McCarthy. And a lot of people's lives were ruined because they were thought to be gay or communist or both. Gay communists? Gay communists. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, they thought a lot of people were like that and they... Ruined their lives. System like systematically ruined their lives. And like without even like the hearings that McCarthy had. Like those were a sham, but they existed. Like we didn't even have that in Canada. We just wrecked people's lives. The RCAP was a big part of that. And throughout the late 1950s and the entirety of the 1960s, kept tabs on homosexuals and the patrons of gay bars in Ottawa and other cities. The RCMP worked with the FBI's own surveillance of homosexuals and alerted the FBI when a suspected homosexual had crossed the border into the United States. So despite the Wolfenden Report, which, I mean, pre prior to this point, would suggest that Canada would probably move in the same direction. Despite that, the Canadian government moved in the opposite direction, <laughs> breaking with British policy for probably the first, well, not the first time, but the significant time. <laughs> prior to 1961... A person in Canada could be designated a dangerous sexual offender and subjected to preventative detention, which is, in effect, a life sentence, if he was considered, quote, likely to cause injury, pain, or other evil to any person through failure in the future to control his sexual impulses. The Conservative government toughened that law to add, or is likely to commit a further sexual offense. So it made it really ambiguous and awful, and it's your fault, Diefenbaker, who was the Prime Minister at the time. So that's a thing that people should remember. <laughs> so criminal, criminal sexual acts generally only applied to men. Like we said earlier, pretty much everything we read really was specific to men. My theory on quite a lot of it is that, and I don't really know how much of a theory this is so much as this has actually kind of been proven, but I think there's people to back me up on this theory, that women get left out of this a lot because lesbianism isn't really thought to be real for a lot of the time. Um, and women's sexuality is generally just not understood through most of history, including today to some extent. Less extent, but definitely still. And so I, that's, I, that's kind of my, my reasoning or my theory as to why. So uh, either way, when we talk about gay men, we are actually specifically talking about gay men because that's pretty much the only people who were mentioned in this. Although that's not to say that horrible persecution doesn't exist for everybody else in the community because it definitely does. <laughs> It just feels like it almost wasn't even acknowledged, and that's, like, the real problem. But anyway, that leads us to the next second big event of the 60s that kind of tries, really drives change in Canada. So Everett George Clifford was a bus driver, and he was arrested on 18 charges of gross indecency and sentenced to four years in prison in 1960. 
Clifford admitted to acts of masturbation with men, some younger than him, and sometimes in exchange, he would allow them to ride his bus for free. After his release from prison, Clifford moved to Pine Point Northwest Territories, where he became a mechanics helper. In 1965, he was questioned concerning an act of arson against the mine manager. He was not involved in the fire, but during questioning, ad admitted to having had sex with four men. He pled guilty to four counts of gross indecency and was sentenced to three years in prison. He received little or no legal representation, which was really common. Based on the repeat nature of the, quote, offenses, the Office of the Crown Attorney for the Territory concluded that Clippert was likely to continue sex to seek sex with men. The Crown applied to have him designated a dangerous sexual offender, subject to preventative, that is, indefinite, detention. Two psychiatrists testified that Clippert had no pedophilic or aggressive tendencies, but that he was, quote, incurably homosexual. As if that's a thing you need to be cured from. Despite the recommendation that he re receive psychiatric care rather than prison, Northwest Territories Judge John Sissons declared, that, declared Clippert a dangerous sexual offender. Because he's the worst. It's commenting on that. I think it was still considered a psychological or mental illness. Yeah, it was. At the time. So Yeah, it was. Yeah. Which is why they recommended psychiatric care. Yeah, but I mean, I, I was commenting on, like, in terms of cure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know, but still. <laughs> I'm just saying. To be clear, not a thing that needs a cure. Um, <laughs> anyway, Clippert's sister appealed the ruling to the Supreme Court of Canada, and on the 7th of November, 1967, the Supreme Court upheld the sentence by a vote of 3-2, to two, which is a black mark on the Supreme Court, in my humble opinion. Justice Gerald Photo wrote the majority decision, which said that Clippert was, quote, likely to commit further sexual offenses of the same kind with other consenting adult males. And when he was asked whether or not a life sentence for committing acts that were no longer even a crime in England was justified, he concluded, quote, it is not for us to say. Our jurisdiction is to, inter is to interpret and apply laws validly enacted, end quote. Which is a giant cop-out, because that's kind of your job. <laughs> Chief Justice John Cartwright and Justice Emmett Hall were the two dissenting judges. Cartwright wrote that if the majority ruling was logically applied, quote, every man in Canada who indulges in sexual misconduct with other consulting adult male and who appears likely, if at liberty, to continue such misconduct should be sentenced to preventative detention, that is to incarceration for life, no one, I think, would quarrel with the suggestion that it would bring about, bring about serious overcrowding. So, I mean, his, I haven't read his entire dissent and I would actually really like to because I really hope there's more to it than just that, but he's even saying that just from a straight logical standpoint, this makes no sense. Although I imagine he had other reasons for objecting to. But partly in response to the Supreme Court ruling, which was really controversial, this, uh, this case really like drove public opinion against the laws the way that they were. People were really not happy with a dude being sentenced to life for no real reason. Even if they didn't agree that homosexuality was... Fine, they didn't think that indefinite imprisonment was great either. Because that's a stronger sentence than you got for murdering people. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. So partly in response to the Supreme Court ruling, Federal Justice Minister Pierre Trudeau introduced an omnibus bill that, among other measures, would legalize consensual sex in between two males who were at least 21 years of age, which was the age of consent at the time. A different version of the bill would become law in 1969, by which time Trudeau was Prime Minister. Clippert, however, was not released from prison until 1971. So, he spent mm, six years, uh, well, longer if you can call it his first sentence, in jail for no reason. Um, <laughs> the bill decriminalizing social, homosexuality in Canada finally received royal assent on June 27th, 1969. So, coming up on 50 years in six days. 
as of recording. Oh. Woo. Yeah. I'm actually happy I got to talk about this a little bit. Again. Again. Because <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. During the early 1960s, Frank Robert Wake, who was a psychology professor with Carleton University in Ottawa? Yep. Ottawa. Yeah, Ottawa. Ottawa. Was paid by the government of Canada. Once again, I'm going to say it. They rejected me. Boo. Okay. Anyway. Uh, he was paid by the government of Canada to travel to the U.S. to study detection devices used to out homosexuals using quote-unquote science. A year later, he returned and used his findings to begin working on what he dubbed the Special Project. So what he did was he designed and built a machine which reportedly resembled a dentist's chair with a pulley-mounted camera in the front. Men would be shown various lewd visuals, and the camera would photograph their pupils. If the pupils dilated at the image of a naked man, this allegedly indicated the viewer was homosexual. Yeah. I'm, again, gonna express my disbelief that this was a thing, even even back then. But the name of this machine, although it wasn't... The official name, even though it was called this so often that it might as well have been the official name, was the Fruit Machine. And to our Australian and UK listeners, no, we do not mean a slot machine in a casino. No. You can guess what the fruit in the Fruit Machine was. (laughs) So it was actually adopted for use by the RCMP in order to eliminate gay men from becoming police officers and military personnel. And no, I'm not being incorrect by stating only men, because as far as I I could find during my research of this thing, only men were tested in this machine. Several issues with the machine. First, it's just plain fucking stupid. Second, the test did not account for more than two sexualities. Third, it did not account for the differences in pupil sizes per person. And fourth... It did not account for the large varying degree of different stimuli reaction per person. People who have studied this machine and its effects and everything now widely accept that the cause in the pupil dilation was due to the amount of light being produced by the different images. So like one image would be darker and then they'd show an image of a naked man and it just happened to be brighter and your pupils would dilate. And also it shouldn't have to be said pupil dilation as nothing to do with determining attraction as Lindsay joked it's more likely to tell you if someone's on drugs and in my jokey response i said or it's too bright (laughs) because i mean the opening and closing (laughs) of the pupils are because like it closes because there's too much light getting into your eye so it closes so it doesn't i guess damage your eye yeah so you don't burn your retina yeah and then it opens up when it's really dark so you can see better. Like when you have that moment where it's like pitch black and then all of a sudden you can start to see, it's because your pupils opened. Yes. It had nothing to do with seeing me seeing like a sexy woman. And I also mentioned it's like you'd think that they'd have this machine testing something else for attraction. And I think you can guess what it is. <laughs> I feel like the thing that bugs me the most about the fruit machine is that something so fucking stupid was used to ruin so many people's lives. Yeah, like I... Like I It says here, in my research, the RCMP collected over 9,000 files on alleged homosexual men who were tested in this machine, many of whom's careers and lives were irreparably damaged. And this came as a complete shock to Lindsay when I told her this. This machine was used until the 1990s, well after homosexuality was 
decriminalized and well after in most provinces homosexuality was a protected sexual or, or sexual orientation was protected in case against discrimination i mean it's not the first example of things being done that are clearly unconstitutional yeah, but to be fair i also so doubt it was used predominantly after like probably no. sometime in the 70s no, there's still nothing fair about it <laughs> no there's nothing obviously nothing fair about it i mean obviously this thing was dumb <laughs> Uh, (laughs) so, I mean, this is where I, as much as I enjoy laughing at this thing, unfortunately did have very horrible repercussions. Many people lost their jobs, became homeless, sought conversion therapy, which I don't even need to begin to explain how damaging conversion therapy is. Uh, they lived sheltered lives and many even committed suicide. And... I can say this with quite a bit of confidence, even though I have no statistics. I'm certain that probably 99% of the men who failed this stupid test weren't even gay. Yeah, their their lives were just pointlessly damaged or ruined. And they're outed at something that they weren't. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, ugh. <laughs> Anyway, uh, during the 1970s, life for the LGBT community actually began to improve because during the 60s, it was more of the political attitude was changing, but now more of a societal attitude was changing in terms of how people viewed the LGBT community. For example, Quebec became the first province to include sexual orientation in its human rights code, making it illegal to discriminate against the LGBT community in the cases of housing, public accommodation, rent, and employment. Very interesting thing that I found out about during the research, and I had no idea about this, is between August 19th and 26th, 1973, the cities of Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg, amongst various others, hosted what is called Pride Week, which has no relation to the contemporary Pride festivals, but you'll start to understand that they have a similarity to one another. The events included an art festival, dance, picnic, the screening of a documentary, and a rally calling for gay rights amongst a plethora of other events. The Vancouver event is credited for the Canadian transition from the homophile movement into a gay liberation movement. So what the homophile movement is simply the assimilation of homosexuals into general society while creating hidden networks aimed at introducing gays and lesbians to each other. While the gay liberation movement is politically motivated with the mission to improve LGBT rights by means of visibility, i.e. protests and marches. This was the mission of Pride Week was was to make the community more visible and to, to promote openness and promote reform. It was the first ever event of its kind and also marked a change in the mentality of the gay rights movement worldwide. It was also the first organized event whose purpose was celebrating the LGBT community and is now considered a watershed moment in LGBT rights history. The current annual Pride Festivals have credited Pride Week 1973 as their main inspiration for continuing. So we, we talked a bit about this like what, while, we, like, while we recorded before. It just sounded fun. The differences that it had with like the pride like pride festivals today is instead of like it's kind of being a centralized event, like where all the things are kind of gathered around, it was more spread out around the city. So like different events would happen in different places. I mean, there still is kind of that in the pride festivals today, but for mm-hmm. the most part, the main events are in one 
centralized area. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think what's changed, or I mean, there's generally with larger Pride events a whole week of stuff too. Yeah. Right? I mean, Toronto Pride well, is even probably... Calgary Pride has a whole week of stuff, right? No? Yeah. But yeah, that's fair. So yeah, but and like uh, yeah, it just sounded fun. <laughs> I was like, this would be awesome. This would have been awesome to attend. Not saying the current Pride Festival isn't fun. Just different kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, apparently, contemporary historians who've looked at this have said that it was probably an, one of those events where most of the people who attended the events were not actually within the LGBT community. There's more an informative mentality to the presentation of it. So it was more to inform people or just ordinary people. Who love to do like make art, who love to work, who love each other. Anyway, yeah, it just sounded like a really cool event, and I would have loved to have gone to it just because of the variety of different events going on. So on January 5th, 1978, the Pink Triangle Press is formally charged with quote, possession of obscene material for the purpose of distribution. And the use of males for purpose of transmitting anything that is obscene, indecent, or scurrilous. Scurrilous. I love, okay, when I say males, it's M-A-I-L-S, not M-A-L-E-S. Like male? Like a male. It's, it's, that was the quote. It says, they didn't say post. Yeah. They said males. And I'm like, that's probably some type of legal requirement. Right. I don't know. Anyone with legal knowledge can let me know. The controversy for this arose from the publication of an article called Men Loving Boys Loving Men uh, for the December 1977 and January 1978 issue of Body Politic magazine, which is a controversial magazine on its own, mostly because it was about, not necessarily just about LGBT stuff, but sex in general. So it was written by a man named Gerald Hannon, and the article profiled three men who were engaging in sexual relationships with underage boys. The use of sentences such as, quote, boy love is not child molestation is what caused the backlash, and the Toronto Sun charged Hannon and the body politic of promoting pedophilia. I disagree with that charge, although at the same time I can't really blame I mean, as as much as I hate the sun, I can't really blame them for making such an assumption. It's, uh, I read a little bit of the article and it was kind of, I get what Hannon was trying to do, but I can also see, okay, this is how it can be really misconstrued. Yeah. But anyway, like I said before, that's a whole different can of worms. Anyway, the offices of the Pink Triangle Press were raided by the Toronto Police on December 30th, 1977 where they confiscated boxes of material which included lists of the magazine's subscribers. Which is, from what I heard, this is one of the major events of why Toronto police are really not wanted at Pride. Yeah. Or, well, the police in general at most Prides. Yeah, but... A, Especially them, but... I mean, Toronto police seem Specifically. To be, but the argument extends to other, Yeah. In Canada, Toronto specifically, for sure, but it does extend to other Prides for the same reasons. Like, yeah. Ultimately. Two trials lasted a total of six years. The first resulted in an acquittal for the magazine. However, the Crown appealed, but the magazine was once again acquitted, and a third appeal attempt was rejected. 
1978, Parliament passes a new Immigration Act, which, among several changes, removes homosexuals from the list of inadmissible classes. In 1979, in its annual report, the Canadian Human Rights Commission suggests the addition of sexual orientation to the Canadian Human Rights Act. On May 2, 1980, Bill C-242, which would have included sexual orientation in the Canadian Human Rights Act, fails to pass. MP for Burnaby slash Burnaby Kingsway, Sven Robinson of the NDP, makes five attempts in 1983, 85, 86, 89, and 91 to attempt to have, the, to have sexual orientation added. None were successful. Also remember the name Sven Robinson because he's going to come up again. It feels really weird re-saying a lot of the stuff that I've already said, but, you know. Yeah, I feel that. In October 1985, the Equality for All report is released by the Parliamentary Committee on Equality Rights. The report details the committee's consternation at the high level of discrimination towards homosexuals in Canada, which includes harassment, psychological oppression, hate propaganda, and even physical violence and abuse. The report further recommends the Canadian Human Rights Act be amended to make discrimination based on sexual orientation illegal. The following March, the Mulroney government releases the Toward Equality paper in response where it states, quote, The government will take whatever measures are necessary to ensure that sexual orientation is a prohibited ground for discrimination in relation to all areas of federal jurisdiction. In 1988, Sven Robinson announces that he is a gay, he comes out as a gay man, becoming the first Canadian member of Parliament to publicly come out. He remains an MP until 2004 and is the, currently the NDP candidate for Burnaby North Seymour in the 2019 federal election. So, Sven Robinson, good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have respect for the man. Yeah. During the 80s, Canada had its own sort of stonewall moment. In the previous recording of this episode, we talked a little bit more about Stonewall. Real brief, Stonewall was uh, an event in the United States at the Stonewall Inn. Cat mm-hmm. Inn? Yeah. In, uh, in New York City. Which is uh, 50 years ago this, this year. It was a really, uh, I don't know, I'm, words are hard. Watershed? <laughs> Watershed moment, that's the word I'm looking for. In LGBTQ history and is often uh, cited as sort of being the catalyst for uh, pride movements and a lot more gay, liber- gay liberation movements. But Canada's moment really came, our, our quote, Canadian Stonewall, as it's referred to, uh, came in 1981. So in February 1981, patrons of four bathhouses in downtown Toronto, the Barracks, the Club, Richmond Street Health Emporium, and Roman to Health and Recreation Spa, were surprised by 200 police officers in a series of coordinated raids known as Operation Soap. Law enforcement officials claimed the raids resulted from six months of undercover work into alleged sex work and other, quote, indecent acts at each establishment. During the raids, police entered the four bathhouses at 11 p.m. and used crowbars to open patron lockers. Undercover police wore red dots in their clothing to show, according to one officer, quote, who, the, who are the straights? Accounts from those arrested later presented to city council described hateful police behavior. One officer allegedly told a line of men standing against a shower wall, quote, I wish these pipes were hooked up to gas so I could annihilate you all. An obvious reference to Nazi death camps. Yeah. Police compiled large amounts of personal information about the men rounded up, including the names of their work, supervisors, and for those who were married, names and phone numbers of their wives. The arrested feared retaliation from the police who were known in the past to have made 
quote, concerned citizen calls to employers when, charge revol- when charges revolving around sexual orientation were laid. The Toronto police did some really horrible things, and it's important you all remember this. <laughs> when the night was over, 286 men were charged for being found in a brothel, while 20 were charged for operating a brothel. By the way, there were bathhouse raids in Calgary. Not surprised. And other cities around the country. Up to that point, it was the largest single arrest in Toronto's history. The bathhouses suffered $50,000 in damages, and no incidents of sex work were uncovered, obviously. The following evening, a midnight march protesting police brutality began at Young and Wesley Streets. Peaking at over 3,000 participants, the procession headed south to 52nd or 52 Division Police Station on Dundas Street. Protesters chanted messages such as gay rights count, a small group of mostly teenaged counter-protesters yelled back homophobic obscenities, and unsuccessfully attempted to block University Avenue. At the police station, the protest encountered a human barricade of about 200 officers. The protest headed north to the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. Violence between police and protesters broke out, causing organizers to urge the crowd to disperse. While most did, a group of 400 headed back to Young Street, where following further reduction in numbers faced insults and more violence. The protest resulted in 11 arrests, one injured police officer, one damaged police car, and four smashed windows in a streetcar. Though police officials claimed the raids were merely a bust that wasn't meant to provoke the gay community, but public outcry against police brutality and the violation of civil liberties grew louder over the days. Uh, CHUM Radio News Director Dick Smythe criticized police for quote, ham-handed brutality and lunk-headed vandalism, and called them pigs on air. An editorial in the Globe and Mail on February 9th pointed out the hypocrisy of the raids. Quote, There have been no such raids on other private clubs in Metro Toronto. There have been no such raids on heterosexual body houses, which are brothels. Few charges laid against foundins. The impression upon the public cannot fail to be that the police are discriminating against homosexuals, knowing that the relatively minor charges which have been laid against so many people may give them major problems in their private lives hurting them in their jobs and families, exposing them to the abuse of others who would deny homosexuals any rights. End quote. The Toronto Sun, once again, <laughs> attacked the editorial, accusing its competitor of, quote, spouting editorial nonsense that homosexuals are being picked on. End quote. <laughs> Sun editor-in-chief Peter Worthington, and piece of shit in chief, um, <laughs> stated in an interview with CBC that, quote, there's a certain flaunting at the moment in the homosexual community, end quote, and that, a person's sexual orientation or preferences should be, remain in the closet. When asked about his threat to reveal the names of foundins after future raids, which other papers such as the Toronto Star had done in the past, Worthington felt that such a tactic would deter anyone contemplating visiting a bathhouse. The bathhouse raids came to be considered Toronto's equivalent to the 1969 Stonewall riots, in which patrons of New, of New York City gay bar called the Stonewall Inn fought back against police harassment. Many, most of those in Toronto who were arrested were found innocent. Though a full inquiry into the raids never materialized, municipal studies prepared in their aftermath helped to slowly improve the relationship between police and the gay community. Subsequent raids of Toronto bathhouses, gay and lesbian strip clubs, and nightclubs continued, with raids in June 1981, April 1983, February 1996, and September 2000. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. And these raids happened all over the country, including in Calgary and everywhere. Yeah. But the... The most violent ones were in Toronto, and it's the largest community, I believe, so it makes the most sense. But the 1990s did see a cascade of legal victories for the LGBTQ community following the precedents set in the 1980s, and I imagine a lot of backlash after bathhouse raids, etc., and just the momentum of the movement. 
As there was more LGBTQ representation in public spheres, these changes reflected the community's continued and growing acceptance into mainstream Canadian culture. Many of these victories were in the courts, including a 1992 federal ruling that lifted the ban on gays and lesbians in the military, a 1994 Supreme Court ruling that gays and lesbians could apply for refugee status on the basis of facing persecution in their countries of origin, and a 1995 ruling in Ontario that allowed same-sex couples to adopt. Also in 1995, the Supreme Court ruled that Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees the, quote, right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination, includes sexual orientation as a prohibited basis of discrimination. This ruling was the result of a case brought to the Supreme Court by Jim Egan and Jack Nesbitt, who were appealing a decision by Health and Welfare Canada to deny Nesbitt the spousal benefit under the Old Age Security Act. Though they lost their appeal, the Supreme Court's ruling that sexual orientation was protected under the Charter paved the way for future legal challenges to discriminatory policies. So it seems to be the case whenever these things come to the Supreme Court first, they lose, and then it just opens it up to more challenges later. So it sucks to have the initial loss, but at least they can keep fighting. The following year, in 1996, sexual orientation was added to the Canadian Human Rights Act, which covers federally regulated activities. In 1999, the Supreme Court ruled in case known as MVH that homosexual couples must be afforded the same rights as heterosexual couples in a common law relationship. There were plenty of legal victories, but some other victories as well. In 1990, Chris Lee won the leadership of the Green Party of Canada, becoming the first openly gay leader of a political party in the country. Following an incident in 1989, the Ottawa Police Service formed Canada's first LGBTQ police liaison committee, with members of both the city's LGBTQ community and the Ottawa police sitting on it, as well as Canada's first police unit specifically dedicated to the investigation and prosecution of hate crimes. In March 1993, the Ontario Human Rights Commission ordered insurance company National Life to pay $23,390 in damages to Jan Waterman, who had an offer of full-time employment with the company rescinded after she came out as a lesbian. Specifically in Alberta, in 1994, Sherry McKibben was elected to the Edmonton City Council Ward 4, becoming the first openly lesbian alderman in the city's history. In October 1998, Glenn Murray is elected mayor of Winnipeg, becoming Canada and North America's first openly gay mayor of a major city. Some good things really started happening in the 90s. So some background, just, just for fun. <laughs> just stuff I was learning when researching this. Apparently Denmark was the first country in the world to offer civil partnerships for same-sex couples in 1989. So I didn't know that. The first country to legalize same-sex marriage, which I actually did know about this, was Netherlands on April 1st, 2001. And no, was not a bad April Fool's joke. (laughs) I I try, people. I really try. (laughs) Anyway, Belgium became the second country on June 1st, 2003. And Spain was the third country on July 3rd, 2005. I remember how shocked people were that Spain became the third country to legalize it because they've generally been seen as a largely Catholic country. But the interesting thing is They're that... they secular, though. They are very... Well, and at the time, it was run by PSOE, who are the socialists... Like, well, the Social Democratic Party, basically, yeah. in Spain... But people were like, uh, yeah, like we're just surprised because it it's a largely Roman Catholic country. But the truth is, like, m- when you t- ask a group of people, like, who, like, who, like, do you agree with same-sex marriage and whatnot? Catholics actually made up a majority in the United States, in Canada, mm-hmm. and several other countries. Which I think has more to do with like the changing of people within the church more than like the actual church, church itself. itself. Yeah, I mean, look at Ireland. 
like for example, you know what I mean? I mean, they still have some terrible laws that are like. Yeah, but they're they're yeah. actually working to get rid of those now. Like, but are they, anyway, are they working to fix their abortion laws? They already did. It's still illegal. I'm pretty sure. No, it's not. They, did it they no, they did because of a referendum. Okay, I don't know if it. I wasn't sure if it had actually been like put into law yet. Yep. But anyway. Yep. But anyway, as for Canada, Ontario became the first province to legalize same-sex marriage on June 10th, 2003, by order of their Supreme Court. Less than a month later, British Columbia followed suit. Quebec, Yukon, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland all legalized same-sex marriage in 2004, and New Brunswick legalized it in 2005. The topic of recognition of same-sex relationships had been debated several times between 1985 and 2003 within the Legislature of Canada. A motion by Rial Menard calling for the legal recognition of same-sex relationships was rejected on September 1995, 124 votes to 52. Sven Robinson attempted to table a private member's bill to legalize same-sex marriage in Canada on March 25, 1998, which failed to pass its first reading. Furthermore, a 1999 vote overwhelmingly passed, which reaffirmed the definition of marriage as being between a man and a woman. So it doesn't really sound great for Canada so far, other than, you know, the legalization of marriage in the provinces. But the prior history, like leading up to this, doesn't sound so great. Also, props to Sven for being like a badass in terms of <laughs> in terms of this. In early 2003, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights once again raised the issue to the House when they engaged in a study on same-sex marriage and research examples of cross-country public hearings. Following the Ontario Supreme Court's decision to legalize same-sex marriage, the committee voted in favor of recommending against the federal government, then led by Jean Chrétien of the Liberal Party, from appealing the decision. Chrétien later confirmed they would not appeal, and on June 17, 2003, he declared his government would introduce legislation that would recognize civil same-sex marriage while protecting the rights of churches to decide for themselves if they will perform such ceremonies. It wasn't until Prime Minister Paul Martin took power, also from the Liberal Party, when the first major steps towards marriage equality began. Known as Bill C-38, or the Civil Marriage Act, it was introduced for first reading on February 1, 2005, and the debate was officially launched on February 16th. The bill met with pretty fierce opposition by the Conservative Party, big fucking surprise, with the party making a motion against the bill on April 12th. This is what is known as the Harper Amendment, <laughs> named after Stephen Harper, the then leader of the Conservative Party, However, it failed to pass 164 votes to 132. The bill passed its second reading on May 4th as the debate continued. One of the biggest supporters of the bill actually was the United Church of Canada, who gave their official endorsement and would allow their priests to determine whether or not they would perform ceremonies. It's funny because I'm actually was baptized uh, with the United Church. I'm not uh, a practicing... I was baptized Catholic, so... Okay, well, I'm not a practicing... Oh, I mean, God. neither of us are. God, <laughs> yeah. Technically, but, I'm not a real Catholic because I was never confirmed, so I can't be married in a Catholic church. Oh, well, that sucks. Not really. Your dreams are crushed, Lindsay. Clearly. Anyway. <laughs> I'm clearly really upset about it. Yeah. So anyway. about not being able to get married in the Catholic church. I have to bring this guy up. So 
then MP for Calgary Southeast, Jason Kenny, also my former MP, and our current Woof. Premier that of Alberta. Sucks. That yeah. also still sucks. Yeah. But. For current, well, it, it sucks even more because after I moved, it was Stephen Harper who was my MP. <laughs> So there's that. You just got a jackpot there. Basically, yeah. Although I mean, I had Derek. Fillers. If I had to choose between either of them, I'd probably choose Harper. Yeah, but oh, that's yeah, not too. saying much. But anyway, that's kind of a like. Would you rather lose your arm or your leg? Uh, so yeah, Jason Kenny. He said during the debates that homosexuals were allowed to marry. Quote: If they found an accepting woman, I don't even know where to begin to explain how stupid that statement is. This won't carry on audio, but the face I'm making is just internal screaming. Yeah, well, she just, like, took her face, like, into her arm and then rubbed her face Mm. up her arm. So anyway, yeah, Jason, you wonder why people don't trust you about the whole, your whole views on LGBT rights. You don't need to look that far. Anyway, on... June 16, 2005, the bill goes through its final vote. In total, it passes with 158 for and 133 against, mostly from the Conservative Party, hint, hint, and 16 absent or abstaining. There's also a a considerable amount from the, well, not a considerable amount. There's a few from the Bloc Québécois and the Liberal backbenchers, but you know. And to explain the Bloc Québécois, they're also like a fairly, con- they're like reasonably conservative. Are they conservative? They're kind of conservative. It depends. They're culturally, just, yeah. They're just kind of weird. I'd say culturally, Culturally conservative yes. for sure. Yeah. But anyway. They're an odd party. Yeah. That the rest of Canada can't vote for, just by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so the Liberal cabinet entirely voted for, except for one member who was absent, while the Liberal backbenchers were given a free vote. Three conservatives voted for Gerald Ketty of Nova Scotia, James Moore of BC, and Jim Prentice of Alberta, who later became our premier before dying, before sadly. Pa- passing away in a, in a terrible accident, actually. Yeah. All except one member of the NDP voted in favor, and five Bloc Quebecois members one voted the against. Who didn't? I can't remember her name, huh. but she was she's credited with being one of the most socially conservative members of the NDP, and she actually lost her position in the shadow cabinet I was because say, of I it. I mean, is that a thing you want to be proud of? Nope. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, the NDP, to, to put this in perspective, the NDP told all of its members you have to vote for because this is an issue of human rights. Yeah. She voted against and got kicked out of her position of the shadow cabinet and later lost her nomination for re-election. I mean, seems so, fair. But, uh... Anyway, so five Bloc Québécois members voted against, compared to 43-4. All the independents voted against the bill. The bill passed the Senate on July 19th and received royal assent the next day. Same-sex marriage was now legal nationally. I mean, that's sweet. It got royal assent right away. I mean... Compared to other bills that take, like, a decade. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, like, if if the governor general wouldn't have given royal assent immediately, they... Well, it, w- it would not have been a good thing. Let's just say that. I think that the country had come so far by this point that it was almost inevitable. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story because no. Never the, a conservative minority government was elected on January 23rd, 2006, and Harper became the prime minister. Hmm. He went ahead with his campaign promise to hold a free vote in the House on reopening the debate, which risked having the definition of marriage returning to its traditional form. Fortunately, many of the conservative MPs, even those who voted against the Civil Marriage Act, were unwilling to reopen the debate, many saying none of their constituents had raised this concern to them during campaigning. Notably, former, I think he was Defense Minister Peter McKay, 
was very vocal about this. I forgot he existed. Yeah. <laughs> he was very vocally against reopening the bait. It was quite hilarious because he's like, no one talked to me about this, so I'm not, I'm voting against. And it's also notable he was a cabinet member at this time. So, And the Liberal and NDP opposition actively worked to sway public opinion to oppose the motion. On December 6, 2006, the House voted 175 to 123 against reopening the debate, and Harper officially declared the matter closed. For the remainder of his premiership, he never raised the issue again. And same-sex marriage remains legal to this day. Now, some statistics. Since 2003, there have been 12,438 same-sex marriages in Canada. Ontario has the most with 6,524, and then BC second with 3,927. Quebec is third with 947. So the lowest numbers are PEI with eight. I mean, is that just ultimately because of statistics? Probably, yeah. I would I mean, say so. It's a tiny province of yeah. Like, I wouldn't be. Well, it's it's definitely one of those things like I wouldn't a, be what's surprised. What's the actual population of PEI? Like 100,000 people? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's it's there's more people in Calgary than there are in the entire province of Prince Edward. Well, it's also true of Saskatchewan, so that's... Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> so Pri has only had eight same-sex marriage, but I also assume that... I'm also just assuming that in marriage in general, they go elsewhere, maybe? Possibly. For bigger too. venues? Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they go over to New Brunswick, but anyway. Uh, the Northwest Territories only have two, and none of it has one. But again, doesn't surprise me because of... I mean, if you look, none of its population is like 24,000. Yeah. So, yeah. Alberta is the fourth highest with 409. Oh, Alberta. Rising. I'm sure it's, well, yeah, it's got to be rising. It's also funny, like, I, I'll admit I got these statistics from Wikipedia. There's also a section in the LGP, or in the same-sex marriage category about same-sex divorce. And it's like one of those things, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess you would have to redefine the parameters of divorce to be gender neutral as well. So it's just interesting that they have their own category on Wikipedia on Wikipedia for that. Yeah. But anyway, so as of 2017, 76% of Canadians support same-sex marriage, including your hosts. Mm. <laughs> I mean, when you, like me growing up with the, like around the time that this happened, my mom was dating a woman and she yeah. dated a woman for like 10 years. So I like vaguely remember, I remember it happening and like, not understanding the big deal only because it just like seemed normal to me. Yeah. That, that would be the case, I guess. Right. Like it, I, I just like, I, we didn't, I truthfully did not grow up with a lot of exposure to LGBTQ people. Well, given, I mean, I live in, you live in conservative <laughs> white place ever, <laughs> not ever, but pretty yeah. close. And, uh, so I didn't really grow up with a lot of representation, but at the same time, it was never a thing that like, my my parents are open-minded people and we yeah. just never we just didn't talk about it so to me like when when it happened they explained why it was important and why it was a big deal but to me I was like well obviously they should be able to get married <laughs> like how old were we we had to have been like 12 at that time uh I was 11 I was 12 no we were 12 yeah no July 2005 we'd be 12 oh sorry 12 yeah 12 I was yeah. thinking 2004 for some reason uh yeah but I'm I, a philosopher anyway. I don't do basic math I mean, it was the same with my uh, mom and her partner. Like, it was exciting for them because they're ju- just because they, of course, supported not just themselves but the f- their friends and like the like people I remember being around quite a bit growing up. I mean, it wasn't. It was again like, it always baffles me that people think that it's like when people are arguing against same-sex adoption. It's like, well, 
it's really not any different from like me growing up in the in with my my mom dating a woman was no different from yeah like when obviously it hasn't it hasn't screwed me up i mean other things have <laughs> but that wasn't it but i mean yeah no it just made no difference but it was interesting seeing like the reaction and being excited about it but mostly for their other friends they were never going to get yeah. married anyway I mean, but fair enough. yeah so and uh, it should also be mentioned that Canada was also the first country outside of Europe to legalize same-sex marriage. Can you guess what the other... Or the next country to actually legalize same-sex marriage was South Africa. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I mean, the list of countries to legalize before the United States is really fucking long. <laughs> and strange. Like, South Africa, yeah. you wouldn't... Have... There's some ones on there that will legitimately surprise you. Um, well, South Africa. I, I know, but there's others. Yeah, I'm saying there's, Ireland. There's others that are legitimately surprising. Well, um, a lot of I, as much as I said, like Ireland surprised people. It didn't actually surprise me. I'd been to Ireland, and I'd like. Yeah. It wasn't a big deal for people. They're just like, I oh, just let them get married. Yeah. That's the Civil Marriage Act in Canada, which is still intact. Intact today, thankfully. Thankfully. Even though a man running for prime minister it's voted sketchy. against it. <clears throat> I mean, a man who was our prime minister also voted, voted against, against it. it. Mm. Props to Stephen Harper. He kept his promise and never brought it up again. So, And as much as Sheer says that, I don't know if I believe him. I don't know if I believe anything that man says, to be honest. No, you know what? I do believe it in this case, only because we've had it's literally been entrenched for so long that I don't see him trying. But there's like a definite wink-wink, nudge-nudge on the abortion debate. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that... I just don't think there'd even be enough support in the conservative party for something like this now. Well, it's written into their thing now that they support it and they're not going to bring it up, so... Yeah, yeah. There's nothing like that about the other debate. Other than verbal. Yeah, basically. Anyway. Anyway, it's a time of tension in this country and everywhere. (laughs) Politically. I mean, things have definitely obviously gotten better, but some current issues are, well, conversion therapy, still a thing. Yeah. What the fuck? And two, Bill 8 in Alberta was just passed. Which one is Bill 8 again? Uh, it stripped a lot of protections for GSOs. Oh, and, yes. Um, so uh, I did find a... Crap. I don't remember. I found it, didn't write it down because I'm an idiot. I had found a date for when the first gay-straight alliance was actually founded in Canada. And it was in... oh also forgot to write that down. I suck. I'm going to guess it was somewhere in Quebec. I think it was actually in British Columbia. Oh, okay. Well, that could be wrong. been my second guess. Yeah. Anyways, and uh, for those of you who don't know what a gay-straight alliance is, it's essentially a club and school that allows LGBTQ youth to have a safe place in school to be themselves amongst allies. And yeah, and and welcome supporters to welcome. Yeah, exactly. And in Alberta... You, and I guess I assume everywhere else, when you join one of these, there is no obligation by anyone to, well, there is an obligation to keep that quiet. So you don't, your your information will not be disclosed to anyone. So if you're afraid of coming out to your parents or whoever, you're not at risk. But that has been under debate in Alberta for a little while. And Bill 8 was, I don't know specifically that that was included in Bill 8, but I'm like 99% sure. That they can out people? Or that it stripped some protections from it. No, it probably did. 
stripped protections. I know I it strips know. protections. I don't know how much protection it yeah. stripped because I haven't had a chance to. Look. I actually know that the previous this only has passed in the last like week. Yeah, and I, just had I know that the Notley government actually did put in measures to prevent the legality of outing the kids. So yeah, she did. She did. So thankfully, thank you, Notley. Premier for that. Notley is still the premier of my heart and mine. We um, miss you. We do. But anyway, official uh, leader of the opposition. Yeah, this has been a. Like this whole debate over the GSAs has been a real thorn in my side because it's because like, like my view on stuff like this and the abortion debate is like you lost this goddamn debate a long time ago. Give up. Give up. But also, I mean, just from a yeah human standpoint, like how do you think it's okay? Like, I mean, when you read statistics, like one in four LGBTQ youth, like seriously considered suicide, like not just thought about it in passing, but like legitimately were on the edge of doing it. And attempted. And they made attempts. Or, yeah, or made an attempt, like, and you still think it's okay? Like, oh. It doesn't make, well, it's obviously people who are most likely not a member of the community. I would definitely argue. No, I just think that even from a human level, like that should just be a sign that something is wrong. (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so like if, that if kids are literally trying to kill themselves over it like that should be a sign outing them is not gonna help help and i mean like people are arguing it's like well parents have the right to know about their kids but it's like nope. well they have the right to know if their kids are like doing drugs or yeah breaking or, the law. or breaking the law <laughs> but kids still deserve a a good amount of privacy rights, especially when it concerns their sexual orientation. Kids, kids, parents have the right to know about their kids when they're breaking the law. And last time I checked, it hasn't been illegal to be gay for 50 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, like, that's my argument about it. It's like, you do like, I know it's your kid, but I mean, if you, yeah. if you're making a big deal about them possibly being gay, then you don't really deserve to know. Cause like that just, to me, like if you're concerned about whether or not your child is on that spectrum, then that raises concerns about okay, what is you your <laughs> intention for wanting to know so bad? Yeah, yeah. And especially in like Alberta, yeah, gay conversion therapy is still legal here, unfortunately. Notley tried to bring in first steps to ban it, but the current government just reversed all that. But yeah, so anyway, yeah, with dangerous stuff such as that, and I've like no, I know people who went through similar programs and have they've told me how damaging it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not something I, no, like, no. Yeah. Just give it up. Just give up this fight. Like, you lost. You've lost this fight, and you're just dissidents trying to make it relevant to you again when it's not relevant. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like, like rolling back the rights of things, it's like no, we need to be improving the rights for things. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. But here we are. Also, real quick, it's Indigenous Peoples Day today on day of recording. Oh shit! Uh, June twenty first, and yeah, I just wanted to shout out all the two spirit powwows that have been happening the last few weeks that I've seen. They look really fun and awesome, and it's nice to see that that's becoming a much more visible part of the community. Because that's important. Yay. I have a question for you, and you don't need to answer. Okay. But, like, are there any, like, uh, terms on the spectrum that... Is the spectrum the right word to use? I don't really know. Yes? No? I don't know. 
I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm calling it spectrum because, like, it's a rain, like a the range. rainbow. Yeah. Well, it's a, like it's a, a rainbow, rainbow yeah. but like also light spectrum. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I That's kind of what right I think. I mean, when I usually I say spectrum, people assume I mean the autism spectrum, but that's just because of the family I, I live in. But anyway, um, if spectrum, if spectrum is not the right term. Please tell us. Yeah, please tell us. We're not trying to be offensive, of course. But I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't know. I'm legitimately ignorant. I think. To that. I think yes. If you yeah. Anyway, continue. Question. But uh, are there any terms on that on that spectrum that like you've heard it and you don't really understand what it means or what it's about? Um. Not exactly, only because, well, I mean, they're, I guess when I first read them, sure, but now, no, just because I looked it up, because mm-hmm. um, I just grew up with the internet, and that's what I do. Okay, fair. But, uh, and I, I guess some of them maybe I just haven't put enough thought in to even misunderstand. Okay, I'm fair. Sure. There's, like, I mean, I say, I ask this because there are definitely... I think when it comes down to it, probably yes. Yeah. Just off and the I'd top like, of my head. I'd like to understand them. Better. better like for example the, the use of the term queer yeah i don't fully understand it's like what does that mean exactly like i'm not asking you yeah. to explain no, like because no. you don't not have going to, to. <laughs> i know but it's just like it's like terms like that i do mostly understand gender f- fluid people mm-hmm. but i also have difficulty with that so it's like sometimes they feel more like a man like a male and then sometimes they feel, i'm probably I mean, making my an ass out of myself, but I think um, it's just some people present one way more than others. I don't know that it really means anything. I think though. I've heard that you can like like yeah present one way than another, but they also can like yeah. switch. I guess I I d- I'm probably of... burying myself in I don't know. sand or what whatnot. But anyway, so yeah, I like and like the other things like like my point is like. Just because I don't understand something, I'm not at the same time going to be an asshole. No, I didn't mean just because I don't fully understand. It doesn't mean I'm against exactly. it Exactly. I'm not against it. I would like to know more about it. Yeah. And it's just a matter of educating yeah, themselves. Yeah. One, one thing, reason why it kind of confuses me, because I know some people use the they pronouns. Mm-hmm. I know, someone I know, uh, it like is, uh, like identifies with both genders, mm-hmm. but uh, she lets me call, like, uh, refer to her as a woman. Yeah. Because how she says it is it's just however you see me, that's use those pronouns. So that's she fair. lets me uh, address her as a woman. I think that's just personal, though. I mean, people, no, I agree. people can choose which pronouns they want to be referred to. Yes. Yeah. So if she's okay with, or they're okay, she's okay. She's okay. She's okay with that, then that's great, um, obviously. If yeah. people... Respect people's pronouns. I feel like I shouldn't have to say that, but respect them. Well, I mean, she's... She, not her, to, I'm not saying that to you. Yeah, I know. Her, her explanation... <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> her explanation is that it tends to be... Like, she understands why people get confused, and it does tend to get complicated. So yeah. she's just like... I mean, she's, she's like, I'm fine with you calling me either, so but it that's also really why matter. I've seen more movements, um, and I've done this now too, actually, is putting my pronouns in, like, my email signature and, like... Um, my bio on like Twitter and things like mm. that. Um, that's quite common now as a movement because, which makes sense to me because how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. The internet. And um, so I think it's just becoming more common for people just to wear like some kind of, you know, button or like have some kind of thing that identifies um, just to you know, mitigate that. Cause obviously not everyone <laughs> wants yeah, to, to be left up to the, uh, the interpretations of, well, I, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of easy with me because people just look at me and they'll know that 
I use male. Pro- well, I am male. But I think. F- so. But still. But we should. Wrap it up. We have a whole other episode. To yeah, we do. So. I <laughs> uh, got shit to do. Yeah. Did Did you have any good news? Because I actually did have good news for this episode. Um. My good news is that Botswana legalized homosexuality this month. Oh, nice. Good for them. Yeah. And uh, which is, it's interesting because like I mentioned we in oh, conversation. I did, I did see that actually. Yeah. We, I mentioned in conversation with Lindsay, uh, one of the most homo, like largest acceptance of the LGBT community in Africa is in Mozambique. Hmm. Also, uh, the former Portuguese colonies in Africa tend to have a higher tolerance towards the LGBT community as a whole. So, and actually, Mozambique has one of the highest uh, acceptance of, like, the idea of same-sex marriage eventually. So, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Mozambique... I don't think they're going to legalize it anytime soon, but I wouldn't be surprised if civil partnerships are on the rise. Oh, there. I do have a piece of good news. Okay. Actually. I oh, remember. and really quickly, congratulations to the tiny country of San Marino, who, by referendum, decided to include the discrimination of protections against LGBT the LGBT community. Nice. By like 73%. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, my piece of good news was that the United States Supreme Court struck down the conviction of uh, an African-American death row inmate who was prosecuted six times for the same crime. And by the same prosecutor, a man with a history of racial bias, obviously. It's insane that that happened because double jeopardy is a thing. I mean, you can't be charged for the same crime twice, but apparently in Mississippi you fucking can. So the court overruled it 7-2, and um, I really hate myself for saying this, but Justice Brett Kavanaugh seriously wrote the majority, which said, quote, The numbers speak loudly. Over the course of the first four months, there were 36 black prospective jurors against whom the state could have exercised a peremptory strike. The state tried to strike all 36. So basically, the guy who was arrested had no prior criminal record, but had once worked at the store in which this murder had happened, and the prosecutor was pretty convinced that Mm. he did it. So he was on death row for 22 years and is now free. So that's good news. The Kavanaugh thing really threw me for a loop there. Yeah, really. Not going to let that spoil the good news. (laughs) Uh, So that's it. We got to wrap this up because we got another episode to record. (laughs) Unfortunately. Oh, sorry, Lindsay. It's okay. If if my mic hadn't... Fucked up, we would have been done by now. Or halfway done by now. But anyway. So that's it. I uh, hope we did this justice, as I, we usually say. We hope uh, to. And hopefully, um, we're, we're going to end with the YMCA. Because it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's happy. It's an anthem. Yeah. I mean, the village people. I don't think it, I don't think it was a secret about the village people, but that's just I me. I mean, somehow Rob Helford made it under the radar for a long time and yeah but you I wouldn't have looked at Rob Heldford and assumed he was gay the leather daddy thing though he literally introduced that whole thing to middle culture okay well <laughs> may, maybe but I don't know much about Rob Heldford but anyway so that's it thank you guys so much this is, this is Jonah and Lindsay thank you guys so much have a good night yeah,